We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not too bad podcasts can be found. It's uh, episode 114 of We Have Issues. Uh, I'm Nick. You can find me on Twitter at NickSight, N-I-X-S-I-G-H-T. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter at IssuesPod, I-S-S-U-E-S-P-O-D. We're both also on Facebook. Um, And there's a Tumblr page and and stuff like that. Uh, It's a podcast about comics. You've probably heard it before um, if you're just tuning in to 114 for um some random reason because because it's your lucky number or something i'm sure 114 is some people's lucky number uh this is a podcast about comics uh, it isn't that we're never negative about comics all of the people involved with this no it's just that on this particular podcast we tend to try and point you at things that we think you might like um speaking of pointing people at things they might like if you like this podcast and you listen to it on your podcatcher of choice, you can rate and review us. And, uh, and I think most podcatchers have that option somewhere because they're, they're all trying to push the sort of social networking-y aspect of it or social sharing aspect of it. So you can, um, you can rate and review us there and that'd be nice. You can also tell your friends about us. We will not mind. Uh, this isn't a secret club. You can tell people about us. The format sometimes is a few of us in a studio um quite often it's just me in uh in uh, my study here at home and also um we do have contributions we've got lots of lovely people who contribute to the podcast uh, one of those people is max barnard he will be talking to you about baseball manga comics in a little while and i'm going to talk about a couple of books that i can at least vaguely recommend uh, I'm not uh, loving comics at the moment myself, to be honest. Uh, but um, but yeah, I did I did uh, read a couple of older books that were quite interesting this week. Um, we are Patreon supported. You can support the podcast uh, and its sister podcast or sibling podcast or cousin podcast or something kissing cousins podcast. Uh, Two grown men, uh, which I do with uh, uh, James Gilly who is sometimes on this show as well. Um, that's at patreon.com forward slash TOTP. Not Top of the Pops. It stands for the other 10%, which is the website that this podcast and James's uh, other big project, uh, Hello Newman, which is another Seinfeld podcast that he does with um, uh, Steve, who is a, a, another friend of the, the show, or uh, he's the life partner of Jane, actually, who is... Uh, one of the hosts of the show, this show, not Hello Newman, not Two Grim Men. It's all getting, it's very, look, it's late. It's very late at night. This podcast's supposed to go out at the tail end of every week, uh, but it hardly ever does. And, um, and, uh, this week in particular, I, I'm on, uh, holiday from work, but it's because it's, uh, mainly because it's my son's birthday weekend. It's his second birthday tomorrow or, well, today. 
uh, as I'm recording this because it, it is uh, 1 a.m. So uh, 20th of March is his birthday. Uh, so I'm trying to squeak this out, but it means uh, I'm fluffing everything I try and say and I'm, I'm having to re-record it uh, over and over. That's why it sounds a, a bit vague. That's why I yawned a minute ago. Really sorry about this. I'm, ju- I'm just going to have some uh, coffee. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's lukewarm instant coffee. Wow. Nobody's sponsoring uh, us to drink that. Nobody's sponsoring anyone to drink that. Am I right, listener? Um, let's talk about comics. Uh, it's uh, You didn't uh, pay for this episode just to listen to me talking about coffee. What did I read this week? So, I read a comic uh, that I had been putting off for a really long time. Um, and uh, it'll probably become clear that I'm not, like, uh, hugely regret, regret, regretting the fact that I put it on, put it off for a long time. Uh, I read Hulk Grey, which is a uh, six-issue uh, comic, a limited series from... Um, gosh, when was it from? 2011? So actually not as long ago as I thought it was. It's a Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale book. It's one of their, um, they've done a, a few at DC and a few at Marvel. Uh, they, uh, pick an iconic character. At Marvel, they tend to pick an iconic character and do a sort of an, an early years story about that character using a, a color picking out a color that is relevant to them um they they did a similar thing over at dc uh but um the the way they themed things was slightly different and and i remember those books really fondly they did a uh, superman for all seasons and um and they did a couple of batman books they did the long halloween and and um i can't can't think what the other what the other things were they did over there and uh and I like these. I like the books fine. The DC ones fine. Um, there's something about these two creators together that that is much more than the sum of um, either of their their parts individually. I think, especially the the writer Jeff Loeb, he works really well with Tim Sale after a fashion. Um, otherwise, he's he's responsible for some of the the worst piece of comic writing I've ever read. So. Um, but I tried reading Spider-Man Blue a while ago and I didn't like it. I don't think I got the whole way through it. The writing was not not great, although it, it isn't a particularly sympathetic era in um in Peter Parker's life that that it was dealing with. I don't, I don't think certainly not the way it was written. Um it was very sassy and 1950s y and nostalgic, but the patter that the characters talked in wasn't very nice. But the art was just, I found it really ugly. Um, something about drawing lots of normal looking characters in, uh, these sort of, uh, normal but period, uh, New York settings really showed up the weaknesses in Tim Sale's art. For me, lots of um, moments where you can't even tell where characters are supposed to be in the geography of the scene, 
because the layout of a room would seem to change from panel to panel in a in a way that normally I wouldn't notice, but for some reason I really, really did. There's something weirdly exact about Tim Sale's art uh, in these books and, and the way he tells a, a story. Um, and it doesn't allow for... Uh, in in some exchanges or some uh, um, sequences, it doesn't allow for uh, inconsistency in things like where a character is or where a lampshade is or the size of a character. So, as much as I like the Hulk and as much as um, I liked the idea of this book and I liked some of the uh, initial art, I wasn't sure that their shtick was really working for me anymore. It certainly didn't work on Spider-Man Blue, but I was at a bit of a loose end, so I thought I'd uh, I thought I'd have a read of this one, and uh, it it wasn't a complete failure. Reading reading it, that sounds awful. Um, actually, some of it some of it was pretty pretty glorious. The story takes place. Uh, it's all told as a, a flashback. Bruce Banner is talking to Doc Samson, who is a friend of his. He's uh, risked um, the, taking a night off from being on the run. He's he's turned up at Doc Samson's uh, house at, at midnight and spends the whole night telling him this story, or 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 failing to get round to why he's turned up at Doc Samson's door. Doc Samson, uh, famously in the Marvel Universe, is a psychiatrist as well as being a super superpowered dude. And um, so Bruce Banner turns up there in the in the middle of the night and starts talking, and it's he's evasive about what it is he's there to talk about. But what it's effectively about is a framing sequence for Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale to do another one of their, uh, this happened in the first year of this character's career uh, stories where they go back and, and they try and pick apart a a piece of psychology or a piece of background detail or, or, or try and uh, uh, create sort of new insight uh, from this old setting and um that element of this is a bit weak to be honest um a lot of the metaphors uh that come up in the conversation between bruce banner and his psychiatrist doc samson aren't particularly strong the points that i think they're trying to nail about what it is that bruce banner is so upset about on this particular night um are they're presented as as uh, an examination of his particular human condition, a sort of a deep examination of his human condition, maybe quite a poetic examination of it. But to be honest, there's nothing super insightful there. Um, there's a little bit there about his relationship with uh, his wife, Betty, his wife Betty Banner who at the time of the the story he's telling was Betty Ross and I believe had recently died in the comics um and there's a little bit of uh, there's a a little a bit about that 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 it's her dying recently that I think is is the thing that's uh, um I think this would have been his wedding anniversary or something like that which which has him at Doc Samson's door but to be honest there's nothing really new there especially if you grew up 
uh, re- reading and rereading the same two or three black and white uh, Jack Kirby drawn reprints of of the origin story and a couple of the stories afterwards. Um, the the dynamics aren't there. I think uh, the problem I would find if I went back and reread the earlier Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale books is that while uh, while when these were first coming out, it was a relatively new thing going back and telling the story between the panels of the uh, old comics and nostalgia was still very much a thing that, that even though spandex comics have always been about just maintaining this history or maintaining these mythologies um that sort of level of nostalgia where you were actually going and looking at the old stories and re-examining them was relatively new when Loeb and Sale started doing this um and it's it's done now and people have you know more talented writers have been have been uh d- trying to do this and doing it in more interesting ways than I think Loeb has and and so what you basically get is the same relationships that I knew really well from those old um Jack uh Jack Kirby and Stanley comics but not really developed at all they they're just exactly the same uh, characterizations of old which seem very dated now uh, but with some it feels like quite uh, inept psychobabble laid over the top of it sort of more modern psychobabble and, and that side of things doesn't really fit um, but it wasn't actually the writing that made me just stop reading Spider-Man Blue it was very much the art and this is really Sale's book. I don't know if his relationship to the Hulk is different to his relationship to Spider-Man or just if there's a lot more for him to sink his his teeth into. Uh, but some of the composition he pulls off in this particular comic, um, the way he draws the Hulk, the way he renders the drawings that he does and the, the page compositions and the storytelling... A lot of it, a lot of it is just this hulking figure in them, in like, uh, nighttime settings and action sequences. A lot of it is about setting smaller characters against him. Um, there are a few action sequences, but, but an awful lot of it is this sort of, uh, brutish Beauty and the Beast style stuff. But, uh, there are, crucially, there are no, uh, period New York uh, penthouses for him to mess up. There is one particularly egregious moment. Uh, there's one particular sequence, and it's a sequence that if you've been reading Marvel comics for a while, you've probably seen a few times where, um, the, uh, Hulk, Bruce Banner, just when he's getting used to being the Hulk, forces Rick Jones to put him in a, uh, this underground bunker, and it's kind of a, um, an iconic, sequence from the original comics and it's redone here but there's literally a a scene where rick jones is um we see the uh the 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 vault that the hulk has been put in um where he's trapped in and rick jones just bored in the foreground trying to work out uh how he feels about it all um 
not in the foreground, but outside of the vault. And he, he changes scale two or three times. And I don't think it's just perspective. It's, it's very peculiar because it's only three panels and he's like a different scale in each one. And it's just, it's just really weird. And there are a few moments like that in this comic. And, um, and it's a shame because the rest of the time, Tim Sale's art is absolutely amazing in this comic. Uh, sometimes it's just pen and ink. Oh, there's some weird lightning in it as well, which is, is sort of put in in post, uh, that, that looks really daft, but, but there's loads of amazing pen and ink. I think a lot of it is the strength in the composition. He draws the Hulk as this really hulking figure and he plays with the difference between really, uh, sharp pen and ink, uh, and, uh, more traditional comic coloring, I think. And, and what look like these beautiful watercolors of the Hulk just looking like this uh, slab. Um, and there are actually some quite comical, um, some of the facial expressions and moments he has of the Hulk in motion. He, he lightens this brutish character who is, uh, uh, coping with feel like feeling quite isolated and a lot of this psychodrama that's going on with this. Um, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have the, uh, I don't have the language or the, the, um, the background in, in comic art that I'd need to really pull this off, but it's like there are, there's an almost cartoony mad magazine style to some of the facial expressions he puts in the, on the Hulk's face. The way he draws the Hulk's feet is particularly, um, endearing, actually. It's really weird. He always has like his, his little toes always sticking out in a comical way, which I think is deliberate. Um, and he draws this Hulk that's really kinetic and then just looks really awkward when, uh, awkward and slab-like when he's, when he's prone, uh, or when he's not, not really moving, when he's static, um, which really, really works in, in this, uh, in this comic. Some of the art's gorgeous. It really made me think of Bill Sienkiewicz, even though they're very different artists. And I think Bill Sienkiewicz has much more range and I much prefer him, um, in a lot of ways. The, uh, the, the way that, that Tim Sale plays with the Hulk shape, uh, in, in terms of how he fits into compositions. Um, and to be fair, having said what I said about, uh, his, uh, version of the Spider-Man locations and the way he handles the locations in Spider-Man, there are a few moments where he makes really good use of, uh, of spaces in rooms and stuff like that in this one as well. It's, it's, um, it's really effective in this comic. Um, but yeah, a lot of that stuff, it does really remind me of Bill Sienkiewicz and, and made me realize that, and, and specifically the way Bill Sienkiewicz handles characters like the Demon Bear in New Mutants or, uh, the Kingpin in, um, in the Daredevil graphic novel he did. Um, and it made me realize I don't think I've ever seen a, a Bill Sienkiewicz, uh, drawn Hulk comic, which might have been really interesting. I don't think one exists. It'd be, Nice to, nice to find out if, if, if such a thing does exist and, and whether it'd live up to my expectations. But, um, yeah, so, and the thing is, Jeff Loeb's writing at times can be really, really bad. But here, it's often workmanlike enough that, um, it doesn't distract that much from the visual. So you get a lot of really, really nice sequences in it. Um, overall, as a six issue series, I don't think it holds together. It doesn't really bring it home at the end. It doesn't land its overarching concept. But, um, 
in terms of revisiting uh, revisiting an era in the uh, the Hulk the Hulk's history really or the Hulk's publishing history um with a new artist um it it does it does work really really well seeing the Hulk smash up tanks with this sort of old fashioned um these old fashioned character dynamics and this old fashioned dialogue but with the these the high production on the visuals is um is really effective and what's interesting actually I don't think I've really noticed this before but maybe maybe it's uh, um maybe uh, Tim Sell's artwork is saturated with this and I've just never really noticed it but definitely here certainly when he's uh, drawing uh um oh Betty Ross's dad General Ross General Ross when he's drawing General Ross it's like he's um he's almost identical to Jack Kirby's drawing style maybe he, maybe that's always been part of Tim Sale's toolkit and I've just never noticed it but it really really does evoke those old Jack Kirby comics in in a way that I I don't think he captures um Ditko in the the Spider-Man blue although I think that would have been the era he, they they were dealing with that's the other thing, actually. That's why um, I, I felt a, a little bit weird when I was thinking about the Sienkiewicz, the Sienkiewicz um, comparison because one thing I don't think Sienkiewicz does really is ape or um, homage Kirby at all. And that's one thing that happens perfectly here. It's it's like these uh, ama- it's like this amazing melding of um, those uh, really like artistic composition flourishes that um fine art composition flourishes that um bill shankovitz does uh but but with these kirby faces in there it's really it's an interesting looking comic and i reading through it i knew that there were certain panels in there that um are are iconic panels that could totally be pulled out of there and stuck on tumblr because uh, that's my metric for these sorts of things. And people would be like, where the fuck did that come from? And you tell them, oh, it's from the Hulk Grey. And they'd be like, this comic looks amazing. That little bit of dialogue and that art oh, is great. And you'd be like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. And they'll think, oh, well, but it looks great. It's amazing. And then they go and read it and, uh, and they're like disappointed and they forget that you were a bit amb- ambivalent about um really hyping it up loads and and they end up blaming you for it and they don't think you're cool and 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 that's what you really wanted from sharing the thing on Tumblr in the first place so it's sort of it's um so I probably won't be doing that is my point but there are loads of panels that uh, would would work really well in that context there are some gorgeous uh, panels and some gorgeous page compositions in this comic it's really good looking um so yeah, so uh Hulk Grey, it's worth a look. Um I am going to pass you over to Max, who is going to talk a lot more coherently to you about uh baseball manga, but kind of sports comics in general as well. Uh and I'll be back afterwards to talk about a different comic. <laughs> I found myself thinking a lot about baseball comics lately. It's not for any particular reason, and I can't say that I've 
actually read any since the woefully short buddy strike that ran in weekly Shonen Jump at the start of last year. But here I am. It's not unreasonable. Sports comics are my favourite genre, by the way. Takahiko Inoue's uh, Slam Dunk is not only my favourite comic, but also what I consider a a legitimate contender for greatest comic book series of all time. There's something very potent in these various titles, usually set during school, with teens of varying talents pushing themselves to their limits to try and make it to the top of their respective field. Whether it's like the the Wunderkind finding his eventual limits and surpassing them all the same, like Ryoma Etchison in The Prince of Tennis, or a know-nothing fighting with every scrap of their being to justify their efforts, like Hiromu Aikawa in P2 Let's Play Ping Pong, these characters dig themselves deep into my mind and stay there as beloved favourites. There's rules to what makes a good sports comic, which seems wrong somehow, doesn't it? But perhaps observed patterns is a better way of putting it. There's almost always an introductory arc that has players from the same team play off against each other, usually as a way of judging the main character's abilities as he tries to join said team. You almost always have the most basic essence of the sport's rules laid down early on, with more complex rules bled into the series over each arc or match. In modern series, you can add a rule that the character's must be attractive, and make you want to see them fuck each other. Actually, uh, scrap the modern part, shipping and romance-based fan comics have been in vogue since the mid-80s, and people kid themselves when they pretend it's a recent thing. These patterns tend to be at the most obvious in Weekly Shonen Jump's titles, where you often get creators who think they can game the readers by playing to these popular trends. Incidentally, this almost always fails. Readers aren't actually dumb, even if they're teenagers. They can tell when you're pandering, and it's almost always bullshit. But baseball comics, yes. Two in particular have weighed on my mind lately, more than anything for how they play with these conventions, among others. Uh, the first is Mr. Full Swing by Shinya Suzuki, which ran from 2001 to 2006, and the other is Rookies by Masanori Morita, which ran from 1998 to 2003. They're uh, both from Weekly Show and Jump. And I've not actually been able to use a more recent example because it turns out jump readers don't actually want baseball comics anymore. But I digress. Mr. Full Swing is, in a word, weird. Fucking weird, if we're using two words. It's the story of Sarano Amakuni, a 15-year-old whose greatest aspirations are to film girls in the locker room and maybe touch a boob, until he meets the manager of his school's baseball team, who he lies extensively about his baseball skills to in the hope of impressing her, and proceeds to try to live up to his lie, transparent as it is. Uh, quick side note, uh, managers at uh, school sports clubs uh, just usually be a girl who's in the same sort of years at the school and like helps out it's not like an old woman it's not weird right it's not weird this could be the making of a really straight-laced and sincere comic about an absolute rookie trying to reform and find himself in a sport for the girl he's attracted to and that'd be pretty standard fare except this isn't that sort of comic What we get instead is a goofball pervert making reference to every pop culture franchise under the sun, from Dragon Ball to Mobile Suit Gundam to who wants to be a millionaire? It's constantly breaking the fourth wall or performing impossible feats to break the tension at any given moment. It's a gag manga in disguise, but it's not that either, because it's also secretly one of the tensest and most dramatic series about someone trying to surpass their own mediocrity on the base of 
pretty much their one decent skill, it pulls off an almost unimaginable double whammy without giving you whiplash, and makes its protagonist unattractive as such, often beating the crap out of him for both comedy and tension. It defies a lot of what's expected of it, and somehow it turned that into a five-year run that puts it up there with some of the most successful jump sports comics, despite never actually hitting traditional points of popularity like an anime adaptation, mostly because of the pop culture references and Japan's lack of fair use law. But regardless, it didn't get an anime, and that's uh, fascinating to me how it achieved success despite that. Rookies as well, actually. Uh, didn't get an anime. Got a drama. That's a bit weird. Live action drama. It's real good. If you can, if you can find that. Oh, it's quality. I mentioned before how these series often start with a smaller game or even a game at all. But, uh, Rookies and Masanori Morita, the creator, doesn't really, you know, don't really care for that idea. And instead they take almost an entire year of chapters to get to a baseball match. I, th- I think it's somewhere in the the 40 range on chapters chapters being about 20 pages long that's insane but it's not here to show you baseball matches not really instead it's a character drama about delinquents and their teacher with baseball as the core the series revolves around and the main character isn't even one of the baseball players it's the teacher koichi kuato who is obsessed with dreams and following your dreams and fulfilling them and have something to strive for to the point that he actually tries to reform the delinquent baseball team while avoiding the occasional violent impulse that got him into trouble is the last placement. Turns out if you believe in dreams a lot and someone goes, dreams are stupid, you might get carried away and accidentally punch them out a window. But yeah, I mean, there's a team of players for him to reform and get into a sport that he himself barely understands. And they're all varied, complicated human beings with their own goals and motivations that form who they are. But to put emphasis on the coach is one of the most daring moves from a series that's dedicated to not just being another sports series. Not that it doesn't do the sports moments well. It's full of light physical comedy and dramatic brawling around the matches, and the sort of cathartic moments of success and failure that have you wanting to scream along with the players. There's really nothing like it, which is exactly what I like about both of these comics. They they stand alone as unique products. A final thing about the slow introduction of rules. Baseball isn't complicated, not really. You can show it in action and not really have to explain anything, and the reader will catch up. Of course, they have a natural advantage in Japan, thanks to baseball basically being their secret national sport, no matter what sumo tells you. So most native readers are pretty clued in to what's going on. This gives both rookies and Mr. Full Swing a great head start to avoid all the awkward mucking about and telling people about the rules, and instead focus on establishing these unique approaches to the genre. That's... Fantastic. Neither of these titles are licensed in English, sadly, so I can't actually recommend you read them, unless you're into importing and have a decent enough grasp of the Japanese language. But rest assured that the stuff I'm talking about here is worth keeping in mind whenever you check out a sports comic anywhere in the world. Think about how they approach the sport itself, the characters, the structure... The biggest mistake a comic can make in in this particular genre is to just assume that you actually know the sport or that you don't need to know the sport. It's jarring and often preys on the mind when they're trying to go and uh, actually tell you anything about it. But, you know, they, they do also need to keep it fun. It's a hard balance, and it does make it clear why sports comics don't happen very often in the West and why that when they do, like the recent very pretty comic Slam... 
they leave me cold because I still don't really know what roller derby is. I think it's like racing with violence. Death Race 2000 on roller skates. Shit, that sounds good, actually. So, I admit I wasn't my most informed self when reading comics this week. Um, I didn't... I kind of read a couple of books on a whim that I, I've had in the background uh, for ages and, and not quite got round to. Um, obviously... The mentioning Hulk Grey and uh, also there's a creator on, on the next book I'm going to talk about who I feel kind of weird about because I'm I'm not I, I have a weird relationship with them and their work um, but yeah and I, I the next book I'm going to talk about is it's called Destroyer and it was a five part miniseries from Marvel's uh, Max imprint and that was back in 2009 I think it came out and um, I've been putting off reading it for a really long time <laughs> not putting it off it just never never grabbed me uh, I think the reason I um, looked at it in the first place and the main thing that made me pick it up this week was the uh, these gorgeous Jason Pearson covers that it's got on it they're absolutely lovely but what they're depicting is basically um i didn't know anything about this book except that it's written by robert kirkman who uh, i fall in and out of love with all the time um and uh i didn't i think i thought it had kev walker art because i saw walker on the cover but it isn't kev walker it's an, an artist called Corey walker who whose work I I don't know. I suspect he's someone that Kirkman's worked with before on his creator own stuff for Image or since. Anyway, because 2009 is quite a while ago, I guess. And I think I thought this was like a, a vigilante book. I don't know the character Destroyer, but from the covers, he looks like a vigilante dude in body armor, but he looks like he's a Skrull or something. He really looks like a Skrull, an old-fashioned Skrull on these covers and I wondered if maybe this was something to do with uh, some character is knocking about since secret invasion. I vaguely remembered the scroll, the scroll kill crew, uh, which I think was a Grant Morrison book. So I really didn't have a clue what this book was about, but um, yeah, it was a loose end last week. So I thought I'd give it a read and it's a bizarre little nugget of comic. So it's from Marvel, but it's from their max line and it, I've found out that Destroyer is actually, um, he's a sort of a, he's a legacy character at Marvel. I think, uh, he's a, a character who's, uh, I'm not sure when he originally showed up, but he's supposed to have been, um, around and active during World War Two, And he's been through various iterations. Most, uh, uh, in this particular book, he's, um, a character called Keen Marlow, who is one of the iterations of the Destroyer. Um, he was given the Super Serum, Super Serum Formula, Super Serum Formula. That's uh, probably redundant, isn't it? He was given the Super Serum um, that Captain America had, but without the thing that kept Captain America young. So um, he's been aging. The way Robert Kirkman uh, describes this series is he said. 
that he went on the assumption that the destroyers had comics coming out since he was first um uh introduced so he's treating this as issue 701 to 705 of this uh, uh character series that he's had this uh, that he's had going since since the 40s and um, i'm not sure if those numbers work out but um so the destroyer is this really old dude in body armor but in the first issue you'd know that he's super strong um i not knowing anything about the character and thinking he was just going to be like a scroll punisher hybrid um had no idea (laughs) what was going on through most of this comic but um we're introduced really quickly to these action sequences this super kinetic um, these super kinetic action sequences, they're really well choreographed. Corey Walker has this really crisp, clean style. It does remind me of Kev Walker, actually. Um, really, uh, really slick, very superhero comic-y, but, um, and as is quite normal for a lot of the artists that Kirkman works with. So similar to Tony Moore, actually, when, um, his, uh, uh, characters and line work are really clear, and the violence that happens in this book is really lovingly recreated, but very cartoony. So the destroyer will punch someone and the bottom half of their face will come off. And it looks gory and great and ridiculous. And this is that sort of book. It doesn't dwell on the violence at all. There is no moment of uh, reflection on the part of any of the characters about whether or not the uh, amount of violence they cause um is or carry out is is okay um interestingly thinking about it now that there is this that 1940s 50s sensibility runs throughout so um members of uh his family members of marlowe's family know that he is this um superpowered and he isn't even a vigilante he's like an agent for this organization they're like a i think in the in the mainstream comics uh, in the mainstream marvel comics he's works for an organization called shield it's uh, a thinly veiled version of shield in this and i can't remember what they're called um but so nick fury's not there but he's got a commanding officer who's similarly as charismatic and unusual um they've got all the gadgets and drop ships and the way he's dropped into hot uh, hot zones and uh, stuff like that is really similar to the sorts of things you're used to seeing S.H.I.E.L.D. do of Captain America, but with super violence. I think the premise of this is basically Robert Kirkman saying, well, what if Captain America was really fighting normal human dudes? Bearing in mind, this guy's supposed to be super strong. So, um, yes, the destroyers punching holes through people, beating up enemy agents... And then he goes back home to his, uh, wife. And it's quite interesting because it's, um, it's a mixed race relationship. His wife is a woman of color. Um, and, and he's this elderly dude. So they're quite an elderly couple. I think he's, we, we find out that he's pushing a hundred. Um, I don't think she's nearly as old as him, but, uh, they've got a grown up daughter who also has her own child. So Marlo and his wife are grandparents. Um, but nothing's really said about the f- fact that he's uh, in this mixed race relationship. It just is, and he's this. There are this older couple. Their relationship is actually really well drawn. Uh, the way Kirkman writes it is very warm, very matter of fact. They have a, a really um, 
uh, it's like a really lived in relationship. It's really nice. The relationship he has with his kids is really nice. Nothing too showy. Um, his kids, sorry. Uh, nothing too showy. It, it just all sort of works. It's clear that they all love each other and, and that we're looking in on, uh, th- these uh, well established relationships. But the one thing he's keeping from his wife, this is a trope that isn't, I haven't seen enough times yet that it's annoying, but it seems to be quite familiar. Uh, these couples who share everything with each other, except that, uh, he's, um, got a heart condition and he's being told by his doctors that if he keeps pushing it, uh, he will die. And, um, rather than taking this as a, as a hint to slow down on the, uh, super violent saving of cities in the world, um, he decides that, and something that he should share with his wife so he can spend the last, uh, few months or years he's got with her, um, he decides he's not gonna tell her because he's embarrassed or, or worried about his mortality or whatever, whatever. Uh, but also that he is, um, going to take out all of the, uh, loose end villains who are still around, the ones that survived, who got away. Um, the first of these is his brother who is in prison. Um, and what you get is this weird, like I said, the, the slightly, os- uh, the, the, the element of nostalgia to it, it's not a nostalgic comic at all. The one thing that is a little bit nostalgic, uh, I think, is the the very black and white nature of the battle um, between him and the bad guys. Like that thing where, like, Batman not killing people is a relatively recent thing. And if you were punching Nazis um, 30 years ago or, or you could have these heroic characters actually killing people and it wouldn't matter because those people were criminals or they were Nazis or fascists or whatever. That uh, cuts through this. His wife is proud of him. His family are, pr- are proud of, uh, are proud of him. Um, and he's, he's got this very old fashioned, very old dude, um, desire to not, not be seen as weak to his wife. Um, another thing about his wife is she has a robot arm. And that's the interesting thing about this is, uh, not knowing anything about these characters, there's really subtle world building through this. So my guess is that Kirkman wasn't allowed to set this story in the normal Marvel universe, even though this is a Marvel legacy character. And what they do a really good job of is creating this, this world, which is analogous to the Marvel Universe, but without actually being a pastiche of it or the DC Universe. Um, but just dropping these uh, notes in, that it's the sort of world building I really like. You don't know why she's got this super science-y uh, robot arm. You don't know if that's just technology that everyone has at this point. You learn these things throughout, but you never learn. Nobody ever says, oh, look at your robot arm. You just see people working on it. You see... Um, you find out how she ended up in that situation and, and, and stuff like that. And it's all done in this really matter of fact way where the details about the world and the characters come out through what's happening, which is how the best stories work as far as I'm concerned. So uh, it's really interesting and it's also really violent. It's not funny, except that it kind of is 
because the violence is so uh it's that sort of over the top situation where it's difficult to take it seriously there are um a few moments where uh the old-fashioned sensibility of it rankles a little bit the um one female villain he faces off against uh he keeps calling her a bitch and i think i mean he calls the men bastards and stuff so it's probably fine but it it obviously made me feel a little bit weird what it what it felt like a little bit to me was like um it's like robert kirkman's channeling uh Mark Millar, but Mark Millar on one of the rare occasions when he actually just tells a fucking human story. Like, Mark Millar couldn't have written this comic. Uh, there is no sexual threat in this comic. Um, there isn't any stereotyping, really, of characters. There are, uh, black characters in this, and they aren't there's nothing stereotypical about them to my eye anyway um it's it reminded me a little bit of i think it was starlight the book that that millar did last year with is it call and parlov which was basically a uh what if buck rogers came home or flash gordon came home and nobody nobody knew that he was this space hero and then he just got old um, it's kind of a similar tone to that, and it really, really works. And um, the art is gorgeous. It, uh, I mentioned uh, Kev Walker. It also reminds me a little bit of Cully Hamner. Um, the action sequences are really nicely choreographed. It's very clear what's going on in them. Um, and some of it's quite... Uh, for all I've gone on about the violence, it, it's also quite inventive as well a lot of the time, which is really, really nice. And um, it's a really impressive, self-contained, uh, self-contained story. It doesn't do anything too explicit, but uh, unlike a lot of Kirkman's other stuff, there's loads of content here, but it all knits together really nicely. The five issues are a really satisfying, self-contained story, and I don't mind that there hasn't been anything else. Um, it's good. It's worth a look. It's definitely interesting it's quite what's also quite interesting is i didn't realize those are jason pearson covers i love jason pearson's art but the um walker's art inside well not looking like jason pearson's once you realize that's who did the covers it matches up nicely enough um and they are really striking covers as well still looks like a scroll though which i do find very confusing anyway so that's another episode. Uh, thank you so much to Max for contributing uh, there. Thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, you are uh, pretty much paying for hosting and stuff like that at the moment, and the domains and everything. So uh, it is going to a good cause. Um, well, you might not think so, actually, after having listened to it. I don't know. Um, and thank you to you, listener. Uh, you're awesome. And uh, happy birthday to my son, Max. Happy birthday, Max. You're never, ever going to listen to this. And uh, bye. <laughs>